You'll take out your insert that says, at home in exile. So we're going to be working from this morning. We've been considering the reality that one of the lenses the Bible gives us to interpret our current situation in life is that of exile. We are people who are not home yet. An exile is someone who's not in their home country. And we would say like, in this time, we are waiting for the restoration of all things. So we are here, but we are not home yet. One day this earth will be renewed when Christ returns and our home will rush up to meet us and we'll be home then because our home will be to us then. It'll come to us. And yet, the gospel has really good news that in Christ, by faith in Christ, we are brought home in Jesus so that we have this dual reality. We are both at home in exile. We're home in Christ spiritually, waiting for the restoration and renewal of all things. So we're at home in exile. We've been getting at that through looking at the book of Daniel, which is a book to God's people who are in physical exile in the Old Testament to explore some of the dynamics that God uses with his people when they are in exile because we are indeed in exile as the book of 1 Peter will tell us. And so we're taking this book as it comes and we're at chapter four today, which is largely about pride, pride. I had a good friend in high school. His name was Mark. His name was not really Mark, but sometimes I wonder who listens to these on our MP3s. We didn't have a Mark in our graduating class, so I said this is a safe name to call him because Mark was good friend, kind, funny, reliable, enjoyable, good student, decent athlete, uh, clean cut, good family. Everything's great about Mark, except Mark had terrible breath. And this is before, like I was, we were sophomores in high school. So that was before sophomores in high school drank coffee. That happens now. It didn't happen then. I don't know why he had bad breath. He was, every, there's no real reason for that that I understood. Chronic halitosis of some sort. And it affected his relationships. Uh, you could see people just kind of move away from him. And it kind of had a, it had a, a corrosive effect on everything that he did. And, and I knew it and, and other people knew it. Everybody knew that he had bad breath, except Mark. Mark had gotten used to it. It was just his breath. And so this, I, I think I remember this because one of my, the early crises of what's a friend like. And so I saw this, I saw it affecting his relationships, affecting our relationship too. It wasn't completely altruistic that I did this. Uh, and I thought, if I were in Mark's shoes, I almost said his real name. If I were in Mark's shoes, um, I would want to know as painful as it would be, one little, you know, moment of pain for a lot of, you know, trajectory of goodness. So I got up my courage to talk to Mark and I pulled him aside one day. I didn't want to go directly after it though, because I was, uh, I was wanting to be more uh, subtle. I said, Mark, I got a question for you. Do you think if, click, I was 16, and a boy, right? This isn't the height of frontal cortex development, at least for me, right? Um, truncated emotionally. If you, Mark, do you think, <laughs> if someone had br bad breath, they would want to know? Do you think if someone had bad breath, they would want someone to tell them? And he became sullen and downcast and looked at me and he said, Roger, I'm not gonna smell your breath to tell you if you had bad breath. <laughs> like, okay, Mark, <laughs> You are the man. <laughs> um, pride, I had a, a, an old pastor say, pride is like bad breath in that every round, everyone around us knows it's present in us. 
It drives people away from us and almost nobody will tell us about it and it's very hard to discern in ourselves. Pride. Pride, which is thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Arrogance. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. I'm not talking about pride like uh, taking pleasure in a job well done, like I take pride in my work. That's a little bit different. That could be different. There's an appropriate pride in our work. There's an appropriate pride in, say, like the performance of a child, like I'm so, I'm proud of how you worked hard on that science experiment for the science fair or something like that. There's a good taking delight in good work, but I'm talking about a pride that is thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It could be described as arrogance. I put on the front of your insert a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, in a chapter called The Great Sin, which is on pride. And um, if you're on Workplace, Facebook Workplace, which is our communication for the church, first, if you're not, you need to be, because that's how we communicate. Email our admin at admin at rebeccanewcitynd.org to get on that. I'm going to drop this whole chapter in a PDF form this afternoon. I think it's worthwhile for read. It's like six or eight pages. Very good. Lewis says this, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads around girls or drink or even that they are cowards. And at the same time, I very seldom met anyone who showed the slightest mercy toward this vice in others when they see it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. The ancient Christians called uh, pride the queen of the vices. And then it gave, gives birth to all other vices or gave the picture of a root to a tree, like the tree of sin in our life. The root is pride. So if you cut off the fruit of sin or even prune the, the, the branches, but don't deal with the roots... Just give us some time. It'll grow back with the same fruit or different fruit. Doesn't matter because it's, it's fruit of pride. Then in Christian virtue ethics over the years, humility has been considered the, the, the queen of the virtues. In fact, later in this chapter, C.S. Lewis says humility is the center of Christian virtue or Christian morality. It is a grace to us, humility. Isaiah 66, also in the front, this is a, it's a rhetorical question the Lord asks his people. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So basically he's saying, what are you gonna give me? I made everything. You're gonna just give it back to me. What will you give me? What would I see that I would delight in? He goes on, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word in, in reverential awe. The meaning there, sometimes we say it this way, grace flows downhill. Grace flows downhill. If we're in a position where we say, Lord, I need you, I'm dependent on you, grace flows toward that. The Bible says it even more strongly in 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the pride. That's a strong statement, friends. He opposes pride. And we're going to see he opposes pride for our good. Humility is properly rooted in creation. We are created as creatures. 
created to be dependent on a creator even before sin. We were created to be dependent on God in a life-giving relationship where he, he gifts us life and we receive it gladly from him. We're in a glorious, joyful, dependent relationship. That's in creation. Uh, sin comes in the world in the form of pride where we are autonomous. And now we're acting like we, ought, we are not created to act in autonomy and pride and self. When we are home again, or when our home is here again, there will be no more human pride. God's glorious governance over all things will be clear. His generous provision will be plain. And then we will be gladly submissive to his governance and gladly delighting in his gifts. That will be clear to everyone. There will be no human pride. That day is not today. We live in a different day. We, and in this time of exile, and this is where we're going, this is where Daniel 4 is going, on the inside of your insert there, in exile, God strengthens his people by unmasking the corrosive power of pride. That's part of his work in this chapter of life, unmasking the corrosive power of pride, whether in the power structures of our world, as we see in, in Daniel 4, or in our own lives as well, as we see also in Daniel 4. So, Daniel 4 is largely about pride. It's a reflection by King Nebuchadnezzar himself, who's become more God-aware. Uh, he's become more aware of his dependence on a creator, though I don't think... There's a lot of questions like, did Nebuchadnezzar really convert to worship Yahweh? I think no. He says religious things here. He says religious things at the end, and I think that's all they are, religious things. I don't think it's actually a sign of actual renewed faith. Some people say yes, some people say no. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Nebuchadnezzar tends to say a lot of things that he then forgets. Anyway, but he's got some awareness has set in, and these are, these are his words. So we're going to walk through Daniel 4. I encourage you to pay attention. We're going to walk through. I'm going to largely just read and make some comments and show how this, these dynamics of pride are woven through here and see if it doesn't work its way into our hearts as well. Daniel 4, here we go. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king. He's taken the Jews into captivity as, uh, along with several other nations. I, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So he's sort of, the beginning and ending are the same. So he's going to say, this is what God did for me, let me tell you the story. This looks like authentic biblical praise. He could have got some of this from Daniel. Also, it kind of sounds like the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation epic. So again, he could just be using pagan praise. We don't know. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, anybody who reads Bible literature knows, okay, that's a setup for a problem. I was at ease and prospering. All things were good. All things were easy. Okay, here we go. He had no cares at all, but verse five, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now, if you're following the story so far, you're, you might think Nebuchadnezzar has softened. Remember in chapter two, he said, I'm gonna call, I had a dream, it freaked me out, I'm gonna call you in, and I'm gonna make you tell me what the dream was without telling you what it was, and then I'll know the interpretation's real. And if you can't do it, I'm gonna kill you. Like, this is a bad boss, right? So um, 
But he's softened here. He doesn't require them to tell him what the dream was. He tells them what the dream was and says, can you please tell me the interpretation? Maybe because Nebuchadnezzar softened up, we don't know. They're honest and they're like, we don't know. We have no idea what the interpretation of this dream means. So Nebuchadnezzar pulls a wise man out of retirement. If you remember at the end of Daniel 2, Daniel, because of his uh, efficiency in interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, gets promoted as a provincial governor over the province of Babylon and a prefect over the wise men, which basically meant he was the GM of the wise men or the, the coach. Um, he was the administrator of this whole thing. He had a lot of other responsibilities. He wasn't doing all the wise manning. He was just over, over them. Therefore, that's why everybody else came in. But then, verse 8, at last because the others couldn't do anything. Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So, in Daniel 2, Daniel's very clear that the reason for his wisdom is not in him, and it's not the holy gods, it's one singular God who's above him and above Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, cool. But right here, he totally forgets and is reverted back to Daniel, the wisdom's in you and it's the holy gods. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, slow learner. So Nebuchadnezzar then unloads this vision on Daniel, verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, this seems good. A powerful, life-giving tree that was stunning and stellar, and I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar thought, I wonder if that's me in this dream. Um, probably. He thought that, given the other things he thinks later. Verse 13, the dream continued. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Now that is Babylonian speak for an angel. Right? These are Nebuchadnezzar's words from his framework, his point of view. So he's using what the Babylonians would have called angels, watchers. Verse 14. This angel proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives, to it, gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, I've been thinking about this on Wednesday of this week. I would have bolded that last sentence. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. So the tree gets cut down. The great tree, it's beautiful, gets cut down and it lays in the field. 
The stump is protected from further cutting by being wrapped in bronze and iron, which is very hard metal for those days. And then the tree gets personalized to a he. The tree becomes a person in some way, he. Now you're like, well, how does that work? Okay, it's a dream. Y'all ever had a dream that's weird? And don't, my dreams never make sense. I wake up, I'm like, I have no idea what that meant. It's no big deal for a tree to become a he in a dream. You know this, right? So it's just a weird dream, that's all. Then the one represented by the tree will be changed to be like an animal, a beast of the earth for seven periods of time. We don't know if those are years, months, seasons. Actually, the word periods are not, it's not even in the Aramaic. It just, it's seven times. Probably it just means like other apocalyptic literature. Seven times is like the perfect amount of time for God to do what God's gonna do. So basically God's saying, this is gonna happen until I'm done. Until it accomplishes what I want it to accomplish. And then the purpose statement of the whole chapter is included here. To the end that, or so that, the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of man. Whatever the outcome of this vision is, it will serve as a reminder to all living that God is king over all kingdoms. And they should be conscious of that fact. They may not be, but they should be conscious of that fact. He gives these kingdoms to whom he will and will set over it one day the lowliest of men or it could be the most humble of men. Perhaps we just start, stop here and say, maybe then if that's the case, rulers today ought to operate in light of that most humble of persons who will be set over the kingdom. Maybe. That day is not today. But an attentive reader of the New Testament will say, the lowliest of men and think of that as a hyperlink to something Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, where he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a little encouragement for the people of God down through the ages, especially since the time of Christ, that one day all those kingdoms of men will be delivered to Jesus himself. We saw it a few months ago when we were in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 11, the seventh trumpet, the seventh angel blows a trumpet and then loud voices in heaven declare this. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And when they say that, the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fall on their faces and worship God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The truth is, all kingdoms of man no matter how powerful, have an expiration date and will one day be delivered over to the lowliest of men in that Revelation 11 passage. Babylon had an expiration date. It was about 538. They didn't know that. The Persian kingdom had an expiration date. Totally can't remember. Oh, 333. That's when the Greeks rolled into town. The Greek dynasty had an expiration date. The Roman dynasty had an expiration date. The American dynasty has an expiration date. I don't know what it is, but it's not unknown. It too will be handed over to the lowliest of men 
and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ, even the kingdom which we are citizens of right now. Therefore, it's appropriate that leadership in the kingdoms of men ought to reflect the servant leadership, the humble servant leadership of the one who eventually will rule all things. Uh, This is not today, I realize that, but it is appropriate that it be so. It's also real that the lowliest of men in Jesus is the only one in all of history who had the right to assert superiority over other people. It is offensive when we see pride in other people, even though we can't see it in ourselves. We recoil against it because we intuitively know you don't have a right, you're actually not superior than others. You don't have a right to act superior than me or superior than others. It's nasty, it's offensive. You don't have a right, you're not superior. There was one who was superior, but only one. He had the power to exercise superiority over everyone. And what does he do? Even though he is superior, even though he is in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Philippians 2, but but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took his power. Jesus is the only one who had actually the superiority over others. He had that power and he took all that power and he served people who then in turn will turn and treat him as their inferior. This is a marvelous savior we have. Nebuchadnezzar knows nothing about that kind of humility or the expiration date. He's about to learn. Verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men in my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again. Okay, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Why? Because he knew what the interpretation was. Maybe he was thinking, how will Nebuchadnezzar respond to what I'm about to say? What will this mean for us? The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. I'm not going to respond by cutting off your head. Tell me what it is. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Let me translate. "Uh Uh-oh, king. I wish this was for your enemies, but it's not. It's for you. So here it goes. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which uh, was food for all under the beasts of the field found, sh- and the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O King, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar was a conqueror, had a vast empire. From the perspective of the ancient Near East, it was the ends of the earth. It was all of the known world. That's common language. Didn't mean his empire extended over Australia and Madagascar and Brazil, what we call it now. It's just like what they knew, the ends of the earth. And unlike the Assyrians who conquered before Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was not just a conqueror, he was a builder. He built Political systems, cities, civilizations, art projects, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of his projects. 
I'm not painting him as some humanitarian. He wasn't, he was terrible. But he did not just conquer, he built things for his own glory, but he built them. Uh, he was effective at civilization building. Verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you shall know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump to the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So, Nebuchadnezzar, this passage or this message was delivered by an angel, but here's the bad news. He was just a delivery agent. It comes from the mouth of the Most High. That means it's sure. You will be cut down. You will become inhuman. You will become beast-like. You will live apart from people. You will desire to eat grass like an ox. And this will happen for a certain period of time. Until you know or acknowledge something you do not acknowledge right now, verse 25, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And after all this, you will return and your kingdom will be given back to you on the other side. Then Daniel gives some unsolicited advice. Uh, like the Old Testament prophets who warn kings about coming judgment, in these things there's like an implicit conditionality that if you change, it may be averted, or you change, it may not be as bad or as long. If you repent or relent, verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't asked for this. Daniel volunteers it. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. How about this, Nebuchadnezzar? Why don't you use your power to bless people? Proactively practice righteousness and show mercy to the oppressed. I don't want us to miss what's happening here. We get a little confused in our days. This is Daniel telling a pagan ruler of a pagan nation that he ought to abide by the moral code of Yahweh. This is Daniel telling a pagan ruler of a pagan nation that he ought to abide by the moral code of law, Yahweh. He's picking up language from the prophets and the law. Not saying it ought to turn it into Israel, the civil, sort of the civil law, but the moral code. You ought to practice righteousness and show mercy to the oppressed. Daniel's a Jew. It means something to him to say this. It's hard for us to get our head, like we're 2,000 years down the road now of the Christian story and probably aren't aware of how much it's affected and uh, shaped everything. Human rights, universal human rights, women's rights, welfare, hospitals, those are a result of Jesus of Nazareth and the effect of him on history. We know this, we just go back. It didn't exist before Jesus. There were rights for in-group in tribes, but not for everyone. 
So it's hard for us to get our head around like uh, how bad things were when he's saying, why don't you practice not oppressing people? He really, he was enslaving people. And Nebuchadnezzar responds to this unsolicited advice that would have stemmed the tide of the difficulty by doing nothing at all. Verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Don't you just want to slap Nebuchadnezzar? No, you don't want to have anybody talk like that. Pride is offensive when you see it in other people. I think we're supposed to, this calls to mind. He's walking around his roof, looking over the kingdoms, acting in pride. David in 2 Samuel 11, walking on the roof of his palace, looking over his city, thinking in pride, I don't have to go out with my troops anymore. And oh, there's a beautiful woman. I want her. And in my pride, taking her and bringing destruction into her life and his life with Bathsheba. Perhaps we're also supposed to think down the road of Satan taking Jesus to a high mountain and showing him all the kingdoms of the earth, saying all you have to say is mine. You can take them by power right now ahead of time. And Jesus in his humility says, ah, I didn't come to take them that way. I came to give them freedom by serving them and bringing the gospel to these nations. This is just one, what happens here in these couple verses, just, it's one little thumbnail, but it's a snapshot of several dynamics of pride, not all of them. Let me just point out a couple. First, I think pride allows us to think we are not accountable. 12 months, no change, cool. Nebuchadnezzar here is functionally saying, I answer to no one. That's perhaps why it's so easy in verse 27 to simply not show mercy to the oppressed because the oppressed are busy building his castles. Can't can't not oppress them and oppress them into slavery at the same time. Uh, Pride tells us we're accountable to us. I'm accountable to me. It dulls us to the reality that we are in a web of relationships where we are answerable to other people for how we treat them. If you're married, you're answerable to your spouse for how you love her or him. I am answerable to Carmen for how I love her. I am answerable to my children for how I love them. We are accountable to family, friends, a church family, Employers, I'm, I'm accountable to you for how I serve the church, accountable to the elders for how I serve the church. You may be accountable to a boss or a company. And all this is under the reality that we are completely accountable to God. Pride dulls us to that reality, that we are accountable and live before the face of God. I don't know how else, like how do major scandals develop in corporations or governments or churches, right? Hiding all kinds of money, or affairs, or abuse that goes unchecked for years. It didn't have to be like, I just thought nobody would ever check. <laughs> like, I wasn't accountable. I just acted as if I was accountable to myself. Pride allows us to ignore or modify the revelation of God. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar what was going to happen, and it seems like Nebuchadnezzar says at 12 months later, well, we'll see. I know Daniel said this, but apparently not. 
uh, older theologians would say God, the way God accommodates our weakness or our limitation, we don't understand things, we have a limit to our understanding. He accommodates our limits by giving revelation, special revelation that gives us light where we don't have light. We are limited, so he gives revelation. So if I was a different kind of preacher, I would say something like, God makes accommodation for our limitation through revelation, right? That which would flow nicely, but it seems weird for me to say that, but there, I just said it. But anyway, God makes accommodation for our own limitation through special revelation. But what we do in our pride, <laughs> in our limited understanding, we take this revelation, we're like, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. I don't think this might be true. And the Lord would say, the whole point of me giving it to you is because you don't have the capacity to judge it. I'm giving you a gift. And you're like, I don't know. It's just called pride. Pride leads us also to be the loudest and maybe the only voice in the room. My voice and thoughts are sovereign. I don't know if you saw what Nebuchadnezzar did here in verse 30. <laughs> and the king answered and said, okay, who did he answer? I think the idea here is he's by himself. Who did he answer? He answered himself, as if it were to say, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, what is this that we behold here? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Nebuchadnezzar, it is your great uh, majesty and your great glory, right? So he's, he's, he's rejoicing in his supposed superiority over everyone. He answered and said, he answered himself. He asked the question and said, I'm glad you asked, and gave the answer to the question. He's basking in supposed greatness. You're like, ooh, that's icky. That's icky. I'm so glad. I'm so much better than Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, wait a second. I'm doing the same thing, right? Uh, it's not entirely different than our tendency to ruminate over how right we are in a situation and how wrong another person is. Roger, how right are you about this argument with Carmen? Well, Roger, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. I'm thinking back and forth and back and forth. And I'm the rightest person in the room. This is what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. Because my voice is sovereign. Have you ever noticed when you have an argument with somebody inside your own head, you never lose the argument? It's because our voice is sovereign and it's corrosive. Pride, number four, leads us to confuse stewardship with ownership. This kingdom was given to Nebuchadnezzar. He was to steward it. He did it, he did it terribly, but uh, it seems like he thought he owned it. It's mine. Stewardship is an appropriate vision of our life, our families, our skills, our time, our resources, our life. Is something given to us that we may steward it for the glory of God and our enjoyment of him by loving him and loving other people, especially through serving him. We don't own it. We don't own any of these things. We don't own our life. We know this because we have to give it back. That's what death is. Number five, and this might be the hallmark here, pride leads us to take unwarranted credit for things in our life. Verse 30, again, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power. You did all that? That's funny because it seems like all these builders are doing it, but in all the taxation, there is a place for hard work and planning and there's all kinds of biblical proverbs about this. Yes and amen. But think of all the things we tend to give ourselves credit for that I've done in my life. 
you know, I got the grades and, and I went to college and I got the scholarship and I got the job and I worked hard and I got the promotion and got this and got this and, you know, flipped this property and blah, 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 blah. I did all of this. What of all those things would you have if you were born in the 8th century in the Tibetan highlands? None. And the, probably the, very, the two biggest variables in life, when and where we're born, three. When we're born, where we're born, and the family we're born into. We have zero choice in. It just is God's providence. So yes, we may work hard, but uh, the primary reasons for all these are not because we're so stellar. These are, these are gifts. Even generational talents. I think you know, Usain Bolt is the fastest man ever, fastest person ever to run the 100 or 200 meters. He eventually, those records will be broken, but not today. And probably not for a while, maybe. Uh, but what if he wasn't born in 1986, which he was born? What if he was born in 1786? He was born in Jamaica. He would have been born a slave when there was no electronic timing and no Olympics. Usain Bolt would be unknown. Steve Jobs, if he was born into a small village that didn't have a written language, would be unknown. Think of how dependent we are on things that we didn't choose. Anybody carry one of these? It's an asthma inhaler? Anybody have an asthma inhaler? No? A few people? Okay, right? This was, this was created in 1972. In God's province, that was the year I was born, and I'm very thankful. I would not be here without this. I wouldn't be here. I, wouldn't, I, I would likely be dead, right, as a child. Severe asthma, a couple times into the ER with epinephrine, collapsed lungs, all that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't invent those. I didn't invent that. I was just a beneficiary of the time and place in which I lived. There's a couple of football games on this afternoon. It's quite possible that in one of those games, someone's going to break through the line and score a touchdown, and they're going to do this. They're going to run away from their team, and they're going to go, yeah. Look at that name on the back, right? My last name. Look, I did this. As if nobody ever blocked for me, as if no coach ever called a play, as if the quarterback didn't audible out of it, no strength coach ever came alongside it, no doctor, no physical therapist, and my parents didn't drive me to practice forever when I was kids when they'd be rather doing something else, right? I did all of this. And we're like, ooh, that's kind of nasty, now, it's easy to criticize a pro football player for doing that. It's the same dynamic in my own heart when I say something like, I earned that money. That's my money. I'm not going to be generous with that. That's mine. Oh, that's just the private version of this. <laughs> right? Pride leads us to take unwarranted credit for all the things in our life. Number six, pride. Uh, this is the final one. There's several more, but in the interest of time. Pride misplaces the true source of glory. Again, uh, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Guys, glory is available to us. It's the glory of Christ shared with us freely. It's not the glory of our majesty. Why? We don't have any. The, is this not the royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar says, no, dummy. You don't have any majesty. It's not yours. Anything you have is borrowed and given to you. Now, in Christ, its majesty is given freely. Glory is given freely. But it's not yours, not something you've built. 
Okay, we're going to cruise to the end here. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall, be made, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not the only person here. You're not accountable to yourself. You live as everybody does before the face of God, I've heard, I've seen, and I'm giving you the just appropriate rewards of your attitude. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. I don't know if this is a punishment from God or just poetic justice. In that, pride is an inhuman response. It's saying, I'm not I am not created. To be human is to be created. Say, I'm not created. It's an inhuman response. It could be that common grace holds back the full effects of pride in everybody's life, all of their life. And one time, God steps in and Nebuchadnezzar says, let me show you what happened when I remove common grace that's holding back the effects of pride. And it runs rampant and you become like a beast because that's where it was taking you the whole time anyway. Pride is inhuman, and he lets Nebuchadnezzar go in the full direction. I read an article a couple years ago from a well-known psychologist who's a writer, secular man named Leon Seltzer, and the article title was "Self-absorption is the self-absorption is the root of all psychological evil." Self-absorption as the root of all psychological evil, and he's making the point that self-absorption is the key driver, being consumed yourself, of various kinds of anxiety, of depression, and psychosis. Not every kind, and this is not a clinical suggestion I'm making, but he, t- he said, we tend to think, oh, I'm so self-focused because I have all this anxiety. He's like, ah, you got it backwards. You have anxiety because you're self-focused. And the academy's starting to wake up to that. Perhaps this is what would be called down through the ages in Nebuchadnezzar clinical lycanthropy, which is somebody believes they're an animal. And because their voice is the only one in the room, they start submitting to that voice. And it's this iterative process where they see all the feedback loops that I must be, I must be, I must be. And they start living into that. It sounds strange, right? But it's a clinical diagnosis. Interestingly, humility is linked in a current psychological literature with almost all kinds of lower stress-related syndromes. In PTSD patients, it's, it's the, the higher they rate in humility, the lower uh, experience of PTSD they have. Humility is positively correlated with sense of well-being, higher immune health, and lower pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are molecules often found in diabetes patients, heart disease, and depression. So here's, well... Humility is good. We're built for it. We're made for it. It's our created order. What was the way out? Verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Again, we're not sure if Nebuchadnezzar has become a true follower of Yahweh or just kind of get some religion. 
But notice the direction of what happened. Verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. I got my eyes off myself and lifted my eyes. Praise and thanksgiving are antidotes to pride. So that we did, we just did something. We sang these songs. I have my bulletin with me. But, oh, here we go. The Hymn of the Age. I love that song, Hymn of the Ages. You know what that song is doing if you give yourself to it? It's healing you. It's getting you lift your eyes to see what is real and true. It's healing you. It's reducing cytokines. I don't know. It's like, we're made for it. We're made for it. That's the true antidote. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. Still more greatness was added to me. So he's like he's saying it was added to him. He didn't build it this time, but there's a lot of like me, my, and my majesty in there still. So humility is a long process apparently. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He's beginning to see. It's hard to believe that humility is the way in a world marked by pride and self-aggrandizement. I know that. It's hard to believe that humility is the way when we have technology that allows us and makes it even normal for us to talk about unimportant aspects of our life to everyone all the time. It just treats that as normal. It's hard to believe that humility is the way when we have politicians who use messianic rhetoric about themselves. It's hard to believe that humility is the way when we have spiritual leaders and pastors who have brands and platforms Guys, this is stupid. This is not what Jesus is called spiritual leadership too. Um, it's hard to believe that the kingdom of God comes by those apparent weak and dependent ways of prayer that Jesus said. But so it is. It's hard to believe that humility is the way, but think about the greatest blessing in your life, that you are in Christ by faith. Why are you in Christ by faith, according to Scripture? Not because you're smarter than other people. Not because you have more faith than other people. Not because you have more insight than other people. And not because you're better than other people. But because you were sinners who needed grace and needed mercy. And God came to you and gave you the gift of grace by giving you the gift of spiritual sight. And 2 Corinthians 4 says, The God who made light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts when we were blind to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We couldn't see. He shone into our hearts and he made us see. That's why we can see. That we didn't do that. He did that. And with those new spiritual eyes, what do we see? We see Jesus at the last supper, at this supper, that could have been for him. He could have said, yes, this is all for me. Come and serve me. But that's not what he did. He got down and he took a towel and he took a pail and he washed the disciples' feet and then he brought them to the table and he said, I'm doing this for you. I'm serving you. I'm taking all of my power and all of my authority, which by the way, I do have, and I'm submitting it to you for you and I'm serving you by giving you my body and my blood. It's given for you. That's where humility comes from. It's not from, don't hear me say you should be more humble or you shouldn't be prideful. That's not, the, that's not the application. The application is look to Jesus. Lift up your eyes. And what do you see? You see one who serves you in humility. And over time, that bursts a humility in our own life.
If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to this table. This is the picture of Jesus' deep, loving service for his people.